Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Do you ever feel like right after a, a big success in your life, um, and I'm talking spiritually, uh, after a big success in your life, you're immediately met with attack. Uh, you immediately met um, seemingly sometimes with, with gross sin. Uh, maybe you <clears throat> have been praying about speaking to somebody about the gospel, and you finally have opportunity, and uh, you, you feel the spirit moving, and, and you accomplish the work, and you preach the gospel. And then that evening you fall into sin. And you just feel like, what's going on? I, you know, you, you kind of feel like eventually you almost want to arrive somewhere. Uh, maybe it's uh, helping out at camp or helping out in some work uh, with Awanas. Uh, have a good night at Awanas, go home and fall into gross sin. Uh, I want to encourage you this evening. Uh, this man Ezra experienced something similar. And I want to show you that God intends it for good things, even though it may seem like an attack and it may seem like perhaps God almost isn't on your side. uh, I want to show that God has greater things planned than what you can think of. Um, But it often may involve suffering and it often uh, may involve working through some things, uh, bigger things than you thought from the very beginning. In Ezra chapter 9, as we've been following this, the, the life of this man, uh, the, the last time I spoke, uh, we saw the character of Ezra. Uh, we saw that he was a, a priest. Uh, he was of the priestly line. Uh, we saw that he was a, a very skilled scribe, a very respected scribe. He was well-trained. Um, but that he had sought in his purpose in life uh, not only to, to know the Word of God, but to do it and then also to teach it. And this was a goal of his <clears throat> Only problem was he was in Babylon uh, at the time. Uh, he was still uh, left over there, which was now controlled by Persia. And, uh, you know, in order to, to, to really teach the people, he would have to go back to Jerusalem. Um, it had been uh, 80 years probably since the last return, and now he's sitting there and he's going to gather a group of faithful people. And we saw his journey, how God uh, had his hand upon him and how he brought uh, it's about 1,800 people mentioned, but we assume with wife and kids, maybe around 5,000 people on this four-month journey. Uh, and they arrived back, and they uh, had all this treasure and, and, and equipment and all these things that they had to give account for. And they give account for them, and then Ezra was tasked with talking to all the governors in the area and basically saying, uh, look, I'm in charge now, and I have the authority from the king to kind of teach the people the law and also to execute the law. Um, letting everybody know that this was the declaration of the king. After he arrives, um, there's about four months that go by that that aren't accounted for in this portion. Um, And it's encapsulated in this first part of this verse now when these things were done. So after he had uh, come back and kind of talked to everybody and established how things were going to go and that he was now put in charge, when you think about it, leading 5,000 people through the desert on a 1,000-mile journey that took approximately four months with absolutely no protection. Uh, They're carrying tons and tons of gold and silver and precious things um, to get there and to finally be in a place where he can minister. Uh, He's seeing all of his hopes, all of his dreams, uh, all good things kind of come into fulfillment. 
as he has this opportunity now to serve and to minister. Uh, This is what he's met with in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read the chapter here. It says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands, yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed, and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings, and our priests been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by the servants, the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, Neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and hast given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespass, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Uh, this is one of the great prayers of, of the Old Testament. Um, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, there's a prayer in Nehemiah 9, uh, this period of uh, kind of during the captivity, post-captivity, these men, uh, individuals that were just extremely burdened uh, for the holiness of God, for the work of the Lord, uh, 
we have some amazing prayer and testimony from these individuals. Uh, it's funny, a funny story, Ezra, <clears throat> the character of Ezra, this comes from Stephen Kia. We were talking about uh, Nehemiah one day, and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were co-workers. They, they worked at the same time. Nehemiah comes about 14 years after Ezra. And uh, Nehemiah was governor. And uh, Nehemiah was known that when sin would come and the people would come before him, it says that he would pluck the hairs out of their beard and from their head. Uh, this is something that Nehemiah would do. Uh, we see Ezra as a man that when something happened, he plucked the hairs out of his own beard and his own head. So just a little bit of a character difference between a guy like Ezra and a guy like Nehemiah, but yet both used mightily of the Lord. And uh, that's why we have that reference in Malachi that says, you know, if you think this sacrifice is worthy, go give it to the governor and see if he would take it, uh, knowing Nehemiah's character, perhaps. What's going on here in Ezra chapter 9 is the beginning of what we would call a revival. Um, revival was something that had been on many of our hearts for a period of time, uh, but seems to have kind of dwindled. Uh, it seems to have come to a point in time where we just kind of want to bear with it and get over the hump, uh, not necessarily uh, be revived and, and, and live for the Lord in a way that the Bible would instruct us to. Maybe because we didn't really know what it would take for that to happen. And when we speak of revival, we're just speaking of a, a, a renewed commitment to obey the word of the Lord, uh, to, to confess these things that we have gone astray and to have a renewed obedience. Um, in this portion right here, Ezra's gotten there and he comes to find out that things aren't as great as he thought they would be. Uh, we're all guilty of having high expectations and sometimes not having those expectations met is uh, disastrous uh, for some people. Uh, you see it just in, in marriages, you see it in work, you see it in uh, having kids and, and starting a new work. Uh, there, there's many things where you may have these expectations and when these expectations aren't met, how do you react? Um, Ezra could have easily, at this point, just kind of gone with the flow. Well, you know, it's no worse than where I was at before and these people seem to be the same as the people that were there and so, you know, I'm not going to try to make too much of a fuss. We're just going to try to do the best we can uh, with what we have. That may be our initial reaction. Um, he could have just said, well, forget it. I'm done. Uh, I don't want to deal with this. Um, he could have said, bring those people to me and we're going to kill them. Um, according to the law, he had the, the power to do that. Uh, but he didn't, so that, that didn't happen. Uh, what we have here is an individual that is so affected by the sins of the people that it causes him to intercede. We have a, a hard time sometimes confessing our own sin, let alone interceding and, and, and going for someone else. Um, but we see that in this picture, the reason why it's such a beautiful picture, the reason why the prayer is, is held up so high, is because it reminds us of our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, who did no sin, who had no sin, who knew no sin, put himself in the sinner's place, was willing to stand in the gap, was willing to, to, to go before God the Father and say, all the sin, put it on me. 
Ezra here is, is taking this opportunity to identify with the people. And in verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even all the, all the nations, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Uh, so what's going on? They intermarried. Uh, they started marrying people from the surrounding nations, and as they married them, they started uh, doing the customs of those surrounding nations, uh, getting back into uh, perhaps some form of idolatry and pagan worship. Um, it's this idea of, it's not so much the marrying of another culture. Uh, we see that there's women uh, in the Old Testament, and we're going to go through some of them in Matthew when we start on Wednesday night, uh, where you have Gentile women that are, in, that are in the lineage of the Lord Jesus. Um, that have come over and have accepted all the things that uh, the people of Israel have and, and have given their lives over to God and decided to, to serve and obey him. Um, the problem here is that these people have married and they're going away from God. And so you have this problem with holiness. You see, God wants a, a holy people. And if they're off mingling with things from other nations, uh, it becomes tainted. In the same way for us, he wants a holy people. But we oftentimes get muddled up in the things of the world and we find ourselves tainted and found unholy. So this is the, the big trespass and the biggest problem is that it's not just the common people, it's the princes and the rulers and the priests. Um, the leaders of the people are guilty. And so, you know, what do you do when you have leadership that, that's guilty? So Ezra takes this opportunity to listen, and he says, And when I heard this thing in verse 3, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra hears this news, and he essentially loses his mind. He is tearing his beard, he is tearing his hair, he is ripping his clothes, and he's sitting down in the dirt. That's what he's doing in front of all these people that have just come and told him this is what's going on. And all of a sudden, all these people start gathering around him. And the type of people that are gathering around him are the people that tremble at the word of God. Um, are you here tonight because you tremble at the word of God? Um, in our spirit, we would like to say, yes, that's why we're here. But if we were honest with ourselves, more than likely not exactly probably this evening we could say that. These people were affected by the sins of the people. And one thing I want to point out to you is they were affected by the sins of other people. Not their own sin, of what other people have gone into sin about. It talks about in verse 4, it says in this second part, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. Uh, so all these people are trembling at the word of God, and, and they're gathering there because of all these other people's transgression. What I'm going to do is I'm going to reference a few verses in the New Testament to kind of show how 
we should be doing the same thing. And, and you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read them real quick. But I feel like it, it would be good to have some continuity just from Old and New Testament. Uh, the first one's going to be in Galatians chapter 6. It says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now, we, it's easy for us to sit back and say, you know, the church would be much better off if that person would just straighten up. If that person would just stop sinning, you know, everything would be fine. The attitude that Ezra has, the attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ has, the attitude that the Lord wants us to have is that we would bear their burdens, that we would go before in their place. Not that we would just talk about them behind their back, not just that all these things would take place, but that we would genuinely go before the Lord and confess these things. What we see here is the, the reaction to sin that Ezra has. I want you to think back if there's ever been a time in your life when you've had a similar reaction. Um, the only time I can think of for myself personally is the night I got saved, when it was just an overwhelming sense of guilt and wrongdoing. But that was for my own sin. That was for something I had done. That's something that somebody else had done. And I felt that way possibly because I knew I was guilty and I was in trouble and there was going to be some serious consequences. The law of Christ, what drew me to Christ in that moment was that Christ was basically saying, I took it all. All that weight, all that sin, all that burden, all that sorrow that you feel, I bore it. I went in your place. I shed my blood. I satisfied the wrath of God for you. And it's this moment of, okay, then what do I do? The Lord just says, you receive me. It's got to start somewhere, and we see that it starts with this recognition of how gross sin is. Ezra was completely grossed out by the sin that had taken place. Everything he had hoped for, everything he had dreamed of, coming to Israel and restoring the people and all of these things, and this is what he's met with, a people that perhaps is worse off than the people that he left. So all these people are gathering around Ezra, and it says that he sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Uh, scholars assume at sometime around 3.30, between 2.30 and 3.30, somewhere in there. That's when they assume so we're going to take their word for it, uh, you know, that they study those things out. So we're going to take it for what it's worth. He sat there for a long time, hours. And one of the things we're going to trace is when we, talk, when we look at the evening sacrifice, a lot of things happen at the time of the evening sacrifice. And you could probably think of some off the top of your head. The big one's probably Elijah. Um, when Elijah's on Mount Carmel with all the prophets or priests of Baal, and they're all there trying to do their thing, it's at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah calls up to God that he would bring fire down to consume the sacrifice, and fire comes down at uh, the time of the evening sacrifice. Uh, there's another time in Daniel in chapter 9 when Daniel is praying, and uh, he's laboring in prayer, and at the time of the evening sacrifice, the angel Gabriel shows up to speak with him. Uh, this is another time where at the time of the evening sacrifice, this man is going to pray to God. And uh, one of the reasons that that might be is back in Exodus 29, like I said, you don't have to turn there. We're just going to go here uh, for, for different references. Uh, 
Um, it talks about the opportunity that they have to uh, sanctify the priests and to get them get things in order, and then it, it gives instruction uh, for these daily offerings. And in verse 38 of chapter 29 in Exodus, it says, Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. And with the one lamb a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hin of beaten oil and the fourth part of a hin of wine for a drink offering. Uh, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even and shalt do thereto according to the meat offerings of the morning and according to the drink offerings thereof. For a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Uh, so y you can understand why it's kind of developed the sense of they pray, and it speaks of in the Psalms three times a day. You could expect the morning offering, the evening offering, and then one time midday, um, those that were seeking the Lord. But this was a point in time when it was taking place where Ezra felt it's time to talk to the Lord. It's one thing just to feel bad about stuff. Um, sometimes we beat ourselves up and we just like, oh, you know, if we can feel bad enough, if we can feel guilty enough, then it's like we can atone for our own sin. Um, I was very guilty of that. Uh, you know, you've, you have this sense that if you suffer enough for how, you know, wicked and terrible you are, then somehow that makes you more holy. Um, not really. Only the Lord Jesus can make you holy, and he suffered and took it all. So it's not this sense of, of this feeling just guilty and sorry for yourself. In this portion, at the time of the evening sacrifice in verse 5, it says, And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee. My God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Um, so he goes before uh, the, the, the temple, and, the, and he falls on his knees, and it says he spreads out his hands, and the word they use for hands is palms. So it's almost as if he's on his knees, his hands are out, his head is down, and he's crying out to God at this point. And, and this is a common thing that you see uh, Moses do. Um, you see a number of uh, the Old Testament saints, this is how they would do it. They would spread out their hands before God, and they would cry out to him. But there's this sense of heaviness, and he arises from this feeling of being knocked off his socks, of, of, of this idea of he's come, and now he's been hit with the real state, spiritual state of how things are going. And he doesn't go to these people and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get a plan together, and we're going to get a committee together, and we're going to talk about these things. He goes straight to the Lord, and he prays. And I want to ask, is that our initial reaction? Um, when we're met with sin, uh, sometimes, you know, I just try to develop better habits so that I don't sin like that in the future. Uh, I'm just going to develop this habit where I can put in place. That way I won't fall into sin as much as I already have. 
but I don't necessarily go to the Lord first. Ezra goes right, before, right to the Lord. He arose from his heaviness, fell on his knees, he spread out his hands towards the Lord God, and he says, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee. Ezra, why are you ashamed? You haven't even done anything. But he's ashamed. He can't lift up his face towards God. When we pray for our brothers and sisters here, do we own the sin as if it's our own? We read that in Galatians, a spirit of meekness and of fear, that we can fall into the same sin. Do we have that, that same sense as if I'm interceding almost on behalf of myself for this other person? Ezra has this attitude that he feels so ashamed and he blushes to lift up his face. It says, for our iniquities have increased over our heads and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. We have this idea of trespass and iniquity. And we know a trespass is... There's the line, and I know the line's there, and I'm going to cross it. That's a trespass. Yeah, I knew it was there. I just did it because I wanted to. Uh, iniquity can be all the things that happened to you uh, after crossing that line or before crossing that line that you didn't know really you were committing at the time. Um, we can have certain things where it's like, yeah, maybe we can name off the sins we've committed today in the last hour and a half. But to list all the iniquity, we probably wouldn't even be able to identify it. There's this, this problem with trespass that it leads to iniquity that we're not aware of. So the initial trespass was they married with people that were from these nations. Uh, the iniquity that arose was that they were starting to develop their customs and become uh, an unholy people because of it. And I want to bring this back to the Lord Jesus in that sense. When we think of the Lord Jesus and, and the verse that comes to mind when we think of uh, iniquity and unrighteousness and our sin uh, is, is 1 John 1, 9. Uh, most of us have it, have it memorized. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word unrighteousness can be used as iniquity. Um, so there's the sins that we've committed that we're confessing. Uh, we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I, I, I'm guilty of these things and, and um, I ask for your forgiveness. Uh, the Lord doesn't just forgive us of those things that we're confessing. Because of our confession, he cleanses us of all the iniquity that's come because of it. Um, when, when the Lord cleans us, he does a thorough job. This isn't just a, you know, kind of wipe them off type deal. So the reason why I'm going to these other verses in, the, in these other texts is to show us the, the character of God. Sometimes we have this sense when we fall into sin or we commit these sins it's almost like we can't go before God. And we see even in Ezra's attitude, he's ashamed and he blushes to look up towards God. But it's something that we have to do. It's got to be done. We have to confess these things. In verse 7, it says, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, and to spoil... And to confusion of face as it is this day. Um, Ezra is remembering the fact that 80 years ago they were just freed. And they had to be freed because of their, the same sin that they're committing now they committed back then. And they spent 70 years in captivity. The city was destroyed. The people were dispersed. And now you only have this teeny tiny remnant back in Israel because of their sin. And here they find themselves back in the same sin. 
Um, here at this assembly, sometimes there's this attitude of uh, a problem has arisen, and maybe we feel like we've dealt with that problem, but then it seems like that problem comes back. And we kind of have this feeling like, you know what? We dealt with that problem, and that problem should be over with. And what we see in the scriptures is that problems are cyclical. You've got to keep dealing with them. This isn't something that goes away. We don't develop new natures. We don't all of a sudden, people get holier after so many generations. We have the same problems now that people have been dealing with since the church was founded on Pentecost. They don't go away. We are the same. By God's grace, we have opportunity that when those problems arise, we can show forth the character of the Lord Jesus. That's what God wants. God wants a testimony. God wants people to say, these problems arose, and this was how the people reacted. They reacted like Christ. They didn't react like the rest of the world. That's the testimony. That's the opportunity we have to love one another when there's problems. It's one thing for me to deal with something, but do I have that same care and concern and compassion when I deal with it a second time? I have this terrible habit as a father of telling my son, don't do this, and then he does it, and then he's disciplined. And then it seems like he totally forgets it, and then he does it again. And then I respond worse than I did the first time. The Lord Jesus doesn't treat us that way. He never treats us that way. We come back before the Lord Jesus, and we confess this sin, and we say, Lord, I did it again. And he says, you did what again? I've completely put it out of my mind. So when these problems arise, we don't take it as an, uh, an opportunity to just beat one another up. This is an opportunity to humble ourselves and portray the humility of Christ, what we see in this man Ezra, and we intercede. We build one another up. We love one another. That's what the world doesn't know. This heaviness has been, he's recounting all the problems that they've had. These problems have come up again. And you're going to see in Nehemiah, they come up again. And you're going to see in Malachi, they come up again. These same problems that these people are dealing with. Ezra, in verse 8, says, And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Out of everything that has happened, we now have this small window of space where we have opportunity to be revived. God has given them a nail, and this idea of a nail you see in Isaiah. Um, I can't remember the reference, but it's in Isaiah in the 20s somewhere. It talks about a nail, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's what they would use in the tents. They would put a nail there. They would hang their most valuable items on this nail, and it would be there for safekeeping they can get it easily so it's this idea that everything we have that's good everything we have that's valuable everything we have that's important is all on christ the snail they've given us this this opportunity for a little reviving it says in verse 9 uh, for we were bondmen yet our god hath not forsaken us in our bondage but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of persia to give us a reviving 
to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. Out of everything God has done, these people did not deserve to come back to Jerusalem. These people were not a chosen people because of how great they are. They were brought back because of God's grace. And God, in showing his grace, how do they respond? They forsake his commandments. In the Lord Jesus Christ, showing us grace and saving us and giving us a place, allowing us to come and to learn, allowing us to grow, giving different gifts that we would be built up, how do we often respond? Sometimes we tear down. Sometimes we make it ugly. We have an opportunity here that even in most Christian circles, they don't have. Um, everything is run by a, a core, you know, paid staff that they do it like this, and we trust that they're holy men, that they're doing the Lord's work and what they have. But an opportunity for each of us as individuals to fully exercise a gift that the Holy Spirit has given. It's just a little space. When you think of how often uh, you're at work, when how often you're out doing other things, um, I remember doing this with, with Rex Trogdon and with other speakers, and you've probably done this in the past, where you take all the hours in your week and you whittle it down to how much free time you have, and then you expand it over the length of what you hope to live. You know, say, say the, the valuable years from, from 20 to 80 years old, you know, 60 years, where you have time to really put it forth and really work and really labor. I don't know if I'll live past 80. That's always the thing, you know, so. And when you calculate it all out, you maybe have three or four years of time that belong to you that you have time to invest in the things that matter. And when you have that time, what do you invest it in? I know I invest it in myself normally. I need a nap. I need to relax. I need to take it easy. Um, only a short space is given and Ezra is crying out to give him a little reviving not to get lazy not to get run down give us a little reviving so he, he remembers this commandment that uh, the Lord God had given and he's paraphrasing from the Old Testament it says which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophet saying the land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever and ever. Well, one of the things that comes up as he's recounting this, he says, don't marry them. Um, don't seek their peace. We're not trying to make peace with the world. We're not trying to make peace with all these people. Don't go after their wealth either, the wealth of the land. And the reason given is that so you can keep yourself clean, you can eat of the good of the land, of what God has given, and then you can pass that down, that testimony down to your children. Uh, sometimes what they don't see is that they feel like this sin is only to them. You know, they're guilty of doing these things. And what they don't see is that they, in fact, pass those same traits and characteristics off to their children. And their children often only make it worse. And you develop this, what we call backsliding, that takes place. That's how they got here. 
you had these group of men, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, uh, you know, they're probably saying, you know, 60 years ago, we had these great men that were able to do these wonderful things and really stand in line for the people. And we remember these great prophecies being given about these men. Uh, but they're long and dead now. And all of a sudden, a little backsliding, a little backsliding, a little backsliding. You're maybe two generations down, and this is what you have. A big problem. So he recounts the reason why we... we God didn't want us to do these things. God didn't want us to do these things not because he just wanted, didn't want them to have fun, didn't want them to have a good time. Uh, he did these things for their own good and that they would be holy. Verse 13, it says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? This is Ezra's great fear. Um, knowing that the Lord God would always keep a remnant, but having this idea of committing such sin, such abomination, that God would almost want to eliminate them. That the only thing preventing him would be his word. His promise. This idea that they've been punished less than their iniquities deserve. I doubt the rest of the nation felt that way. I really do. I think they felt like God was a little hard. That, yeah, it was in his word. That, yeah, it says these things. You know, I was a little excessive. Almost like when you tell someone that, you know, when you were born, you were born with this sin nature. And from birth, at that acknowledgement of sin, you're condemned to hell. Even though that's what the Bible says, most people would say, that's a little heavy. That's a little harsh. God wants us to know these things that we can be aware that we can come before him and say, what then must I do? And then we have the opportunity to point to the Lord Jesus. So he's not telling us these things just so that we can think of, oh, you know, God's real harsh on these things. He's telling us so that we can know. That when we go to God, we're ready to hear. You know, when all of a sudden, you know, your life is on the line, your hearing gets better, your focus gets better, everything, like, comes into, you know, into tune. And you're ready to receive whatever the Lord has. And at that point in time, it's trusting in Christ. It's having faith in Christ. And it seems like, you know, how can a man dying 2,000 years ago on a cross take away my sin? Well, because God said so. That's the only hope we have in the promised word of God. So this is Ezra's feeling God's been gracious to him. He's, he's asking for a little reviving. He understands the sin. He understands where they've gone wrong. And in verse 15, it says, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespass, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Acknowledging how great their sin really is. And again, 
Ezra didn't do this. You would think this is a prayer like David when he comes before, after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. I mean, he is pouring his heart out, and he is just feeling really guilty about this. Ezra wasn't even a part of this. And it's the same tone. It's that same feeling. He knows that the Lord is righteous, and he knows because of their trespass they cannot stand. In the same way that when we're confronted with our sin, we have to realize that all we have is Christ. We don't get a little reviving because we're good. We don't get a little reviving because um, we deserve it. We get a little reviving when we're desiring to live holy lives for Christ by faith. There's a portion in um, 1 Peter that kind of reminds us of this. Uh, 1 Peter 21. This is a, a reference when it talks about the sufferings that we have, the example of Christ's sufferings, when we think of our own suffering. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray." but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. There's another one that comes to mind, Galatians 3. In 13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. When there's a lot of problems in a place, you have the most opportunity to be a picture of Christ. And the one thing that we love most about Christ is that even though he didn't have to, even though there was no sin in his own life, even though he was not guilty of these things, he took the judgment. He took the punishment in our place. That's what drew us unto him. And we can have an opportunity here to intercede and to pray for a little reviving an opportunity to be obedient to the word of God. And when I say obedient to the word of God, I'm meaning in loving one another. I'm meaning in exercising our gifts. I'm meaning in confessing sin. I'm meaning in extraordinary things, calling down fire from heaven and healing people. And I mean, just in the simple things that the Lord Jesus has told us to do. We have an opportunity here just for a little space. So when you're met with that success, And right after follows this uh, downward turn. Don't be discouraged. Go before the Lord. We've had our own little downward turn. Don't be discouraged. Go before the Lord. We have a little space. May the Lord give us a little reviving. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for this opportunity we've had tonight just to come and to to hear from Your Word. Uh, We pray that, uh, Father, our hearts wouldn't be hard Uh, that they wouldn't be callous. We think of 
uh, the people in Ezra's day and these sins had been going on for a long time and it had kind of become normal. Uh, we pray that we would have a heart like Ezra, like our Lord Jesus, where it would affect us, uh, where it would cause us to come before you. And, and Father, just confess our, our apathy, uh, confess our, our laziness, our selfishness, uh, Father, our, our backbiting, um, all the things that have, have gone on in each of our lives, Father, that has taken us away from being a picture of Christ. Um, we confess these things before thee, and we just ask that you would, uh, at this time, give us a little reviving uh, by your spirit, by your grace, not because of anything we've done, but to renew in us a spirit of the Lord Jesus to, to be obedient unto your will and to desire to do the things that you have put in front of us. Uh, we give thee thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.